Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You are listening to Keep Canada Weird, a weekly weird news roundup by The Nighttime Podcast. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the latest episode in my weekly Keep Canada Weird series. Typically, this series centers around my pal Aaron and I reviewing odd Canadian news stories from the past week. However, this time around, scheduling became an issue. You see, Aaron moonlights as an actor and director of theater productions across Cape Breton Island. And this week, it's the premiere of his latest show, and as such, his focus is elsewhere. And as a result of that, in tonight's episode, I'm going to take a detour away from our usual weekly weird news wrap-up and instead feature a conversation with someone standing on the front lines of weird Canadian research. Dr. Matthew Hayes is an English and philosophy professor at Northern Lakes College in Alberta. And what makes him an appropriate guest for this show is the focus of his research. Dr. Hayes has spent a significant portion of his life digging through the Canadian government's documents and communications that relate to UFO sightings. And to make his work truly unique, his quest hasn't been to solve the mystery of unexplained flying objects or to confirm or deny the existence of extraterrestrial life. Dr. Hayes has viewed it as a social phenomenon, and the questions he sets out to answer are what did UFOs mean to Canadian scientists, politicians, the military? What do they say about it and how do they understand it? And what I found is by removing the almost faith-based baggage that often accompanies this topic, it leaves his work with both an approachable and compelling context to view this subject. In fact, his research, as presented in his doctoral thesis, is so fascinating that an edited version was recently published in the form of a book. In The Search for the Unknown, which is available at booksellers across Canada, Dr. Hayes presents a history of Canadian UFO sightings, conspiracy theories, and the ever-growing mistrust between Canadian citizens and the state. So let's get to it. Tonight in this episode of Nighttime, Dr. Matthew Hayes and I will discuss his work, his book, and ultimately discuss the very lively UFO scene here in Canada. Dr. Matthew Hayes, amazing to have you here. And, and, and I start with Dr. Matthew Hayes because that's, that's a big difference uh, since the last time you were here. When you were on the show, I guess probably about a, maybe a year and a half ago, it was when you were just about to present and defend your doctoral thesis uh, so congratulations on that. That's that's the only reason I'm leaning so heavily on the doctor part. Yeah, <laughs> that's all right. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's weird. It's just like, especially because the pandemic's been such a time warp. Uh, it just in many ways hasn't sunk in that I that I finished that project, and especially now that the book is out, it's just 
it's it's unreal they're unreal or yeah. surreal yeah yeah and I've, i sent you a message as well referring to you as doctor and you said come on please so it, <laughs> like how does because i think the perception is when people get their phd they like demand people call them doctor i feel like you're the opposite what's up with this uh i don't know i've known a couple of professors that demanded it and i don't know i just it i just never felt that i needed or wanted that i guess I, yeah, I guess I, I did it for different reasons. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I just yeah. think if anyone should should lean heavily on the title, it's the doctor who has like a background in UFO research and studies. <laughs> it's like the the one kind of doctor that really uh, that we really need to all encourage. I think <laughs> I'll try. I'll, I'll try being a little a little bit more pushy on it. I guess we'll see yeah. how it goes. Yeah. Uh, another thing that's changed for people who've listened to my show for a while. When you were on, you were. It pass in in the past, like a year and a half, two and a half years ago, or whatever it was, um, you, your doctoral thesis was on the Canadian government's interest in UFOs, how they handled reports, how they dealt with the letters they were getting, and that doctoral thesis was presented, was defended. You did your thing. Now it appears, I guess, uh, an edited format in this book, Search for the Unknown. Maybe just before we get into stuff, tell me how you went from writing it as a, a thesis for school to turning it into a book. Uh, lots of revision. <laughs> That's yeah. the main thing. Yeah, it's, it was always my intention to uh, turn it into a book, whatever that looked like. And it's not, it's never, it's usually never clear what that is. Often until it arrives, you know, in, in the box, you're never quite clear how it's, this is going to look like in the end. Um, but yeah, so it was always my intention because I just felt that was one of the easiest ways to get it out there. But, and it's, you know, I've ridded it of all of the academic jargon and it's got a great design. Um, kudos to the press for doing it. It looks amazing. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to make the work more accessible because the PhD dissertation it's 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 available free online to read and if people are into that you know I encourage them but um it's going to be probably a harder read than this because they have to satisfy all the academic requirements yeah so yeah okay. it's nicer to have this out how would you like I, I described your work briefly as like uh looking at how the canadian government responds mm -hmm. to and dealt with the ufo question over the years how would you describe it like what is this uh, what is this book about? Is it for UFO fans? Is it for history fans? And what's in it? <laughs> I'm tempted to say a bit of both. I think that's the best answer. And that's kind of the weird thing is that I, it's always been a bit uh, hard to categorize because in many ways, this is just straight up Canadian history. If you're interested in Cold War history, post-war Canadian history, it's got a lot of that. And it's got some wackiness to it to liven it up. Uh, if you're into UFOs, then it's got some really detailed history of what the Canadian government thought about it and, you know, a number of Canadian citizens. So I think there's hopefully a little bit for everyone. And I think it's a short enough book, uh, mercifully short in, you know, especially these days with our attention spans and our brains being mushy. Yeah, that, it, uh, it won't be onerous. Yeah, it's uh, one part of it that I really enjoyed was the like you started with a lot of different um like drawings that were presented with UFO oh, yeah. reports. So there's all these kind of illustrations at the beginning that I think was amazing. Yeah, that was all the press as well. <laughs> I was like, oh, you're going to put them in the center. That's what I usually think. And like, oh, no, we put that at the front now. That, that's like everybody loves that seeing at the, at the beginning. So I thought it was great. Yeah, you open it up and then it's just these this one drawing after the other that are straight from the archives that I found just looking through these thousands and thousands of files. And so I this is a, actually a curated selection of 
uh, I think it's like 20, 25 or something. There's quite a lot of them of just the ones that I, my favorite ones, the ones that I thought, you know, just represented the archive best. Yeah. It, it, when I go through the book, it's a, a lot of it is based on, again, like letters that were written to government or reports that made their way to the government. How did you get access to all this stuff? Oh, it's all honestly publicly available. Uh, it's in the National Archives in Ottawa. You know, I spent uh, a couple of weeks there um, just kind of copying document after document from the, the microfilm machines or just, you know, physical hard copy, photographing them. Uh, but it's all publicly available for the most part. I had to do several, you know, freedom of information requests for some of the stuff, but um, for the most part, it's or it's all declassified. It's all, it's all there for the person who wants to venture in yeah. and dig it out. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because kind of the perception is that the government knows this stuff and they're hiding it away. But I think a more accurate thing based on what you've told me is like they put it up there for people to find and no one really cares to dig into it and write a book about it. <laughs> yeah, there's the few, you know, like lonely souls who decided to, to spend a few years doing that. <laughs> and and I, I guess I can include myself in that, in that bunch. Um, but it's been great fun. Um, but yeah, I think just for the most part, the, the average person is not going to go to their archives and spend the time to do that. And, um, you know, it's just like really dense archival material a lot of the time. So uh, it's great that it's free and accessible, but actually, you know, making sense of it and reading through all that is something else entirely. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I've read um, it described, the book Search for the Unknown, I read it described as a UFO book for people who aren't necessarily into UFOs. T <laughs> tell me about like the, well, like when you pitch a book like this, <laughs> how is it like the marketing side of it? Like, who is this for? Yeah, it's funny because that's pretty close to how I've described the, the work in general for a long time is that, you know, it's, uh, I, I tell people I, I wrote this history of Canada's UFO investigation, which is the easiest shorthand for it. But if I get enough into it, I, I say pretty quickly that it's not really about UFOs. You know, everybody is talking about UFOs. Citizens are sending letters to the government about them. Government officials are freaking out or are just trying to ignore these UFOs. But it's really about, you know, stuff that's underneath, that's these underlying, like, philosophies and conflicts in, in the way people think that um, the government should care for citizens or the responsibilities people have or... Uh, fears about national security. There's all these other things going on that you can kind of trace through the decades, um, but they all get projected onto UFOs because they're this fantastical object that you know just defies explanation. It's very yeah. convenient in many yeah. ways. And how far back are you going? Your research uh, for this book, like 1960s, 50s? Like how how far back did you dig? Yeah, the, really the late 1940s. So I, I kind of start with the standards. Uh, American history of the Kenneth Arnold sighting in 1947 uh, in Washington State, and then the Roswell um, thing just a couple of weeks later. Uh, but the history of the Canadian stuff really starts in 1950 um, with a specific history of this one government official. And then it goes all the way technically till 1995. And that's kind of where I cap it off. And I sensed that um, what seemed to be a, as definitive of, of an end to the investigation as I could find in the files. Although it had really petered out even by the late 1970s, um, early 1980s. So it really depends how you define it. Yeah. And, and you talked about this one kind of Canadian official and the government kind of kickstarting this. What's this? Who is it? What's their story? 
Yeah, that's uh, Wilbur Smith. Uh, Wilbur Smith has been a favorite um, kind of from the beginning. I knew about him very early on in the research. Uh, and if you get enough or, you know, not even that deep into, especially Canada, history of Canada's UFO phenomenon, Wilbur Smith comes up pretty quick. And so I knew that I would be writing about him in some detail. And so he's the subject of chapter one, an entire chapter. And it's because, you know, at a time when government officials and scientists in particular were pretty skeptical of the whole thing, um, they associated UFOs and flying saucers with, you know, little green men. Uh, and so they just tried to ignore it. Wilbur Smith was quite serious about it. And he worked for the government. And so he was in this unique position. Not many people are in this um, kind of role. He was a technically trained, competent radio engineer working for the Department of Transport, which still exists today. Uh, and is actually the department that's still in some sense responsible for you know, receiving, cataloging UFO reports. And so that department's particular history with UFOs goes back to the 1950s. And um, that's part of what I'm showing here is this period of about four years where he uh, started Project Magnet to try to figure out what UFOs are, what you know, physical principles they're using to, to like operate these crafts that everybody's talking about. And so it's just this chronicle of his attempts to do that through various kinds of experimentation. Um, and then uh, some about what happens after the government basically shuts the project down. Yeah, so so I'm just imagining when even someone within the government wants to have a government project to look into UFOs, they must have had a pretty good case to get you know funding and get money. What was it, how did he pitch this? Like, what was there? Was it in response to some crazy thing that happened, or was he just a great salesman? Like, how did this guy <laughs> get this off the ground? Yeah, I had the same question, and so I explore that in detail because I think I posed pretty much that exact question, like. How did he get this project approved? You know, you would just assume the way that the governments, you know, even just kind of a general sense, thinking back to how they'd operate at that time, you just assume that they would deny this project altogether. And I think that Wilbur Smith was quite clever about that. He he really downplayed the extraterrestrial parts of the UFO thing and really focused on this might be a piece of advanced technology that's in the sky. The department has a mandate to you know, do some research into this. He also framed it more specifically and technically as part of research into the ionosphere, which has always caused some trouble for Canadian scientists. Um, and so he was able to kind of shoehorn it into existence by saying that it might give us some in insight into these existing projects we have going on. I'm not really interested in the extraterrestrial thing. I just want to study the, you know, the physical part of it. And that may have been true in the very early days, but it becomes fairly quickly clear that he is much more of a believer in the ET side than he let on. And okay. that starts to cause conflict with the department. Can you, th as you're looking at his life and his work, can you give an example of like when it started to be apparent that it, you know, it was a bit more personal to him? Yeah. Well, there's a couple of, I, I go through a number of reports that he submitted or I've just found in the archives. And there's also, you know, there's newspaper clippings that I found where he's interviewed uh, really from all over the world. And so it starts to come out in various ways that he says that, you know, I'm doing some research and the experiments are not really helping. They're not really giving me the results I want. And, but I'm, I'm able to like eliminate certain possibilities and just like bit by bit over the months and a couple of years, 
it, it becomes clear that he's just like checking this box and, and or like crossing off all of these possibilities. And then finally he starts speak, stating pretty unequivocally that the only solution, the only, you know, reasonable explanation for this is that they're extraterrestrial. And so um, there's, you know, little hints of this all the way along, but then it's pretty clear. And then the department starts to really come down on him at that point. My kind of experience with UFOs is, is mainly looking at, you know, the mainstream reporting or, or just the various, you know, stories that come out. So I, I don't spend as much time looking at, you know, government communication, internal government communication about UFOs the way uh, the way you have been uh, leading up to this book. But I find like when, when I look at a UFO story that makes it into the news, it's usually this kind of... Um, not a lot of detail, two people outside saw a UFO and somehow CBC finds out about it and they're doing a little story and it's usually kind of lighthearted almost and a little fun. Mm. Uh, how would you describe the tone of, you know, the, the government's internal communications? And I, and I know you've been mm. looking at a, a wide kind of period of time, so it may differ as time went on, but overall, like what kind of tone is set in these uh, documents? Well, I, I think the interesting thing about that, or the surprising thing, is that I expected the tone to differ over time, like you said, but it doesn't really. It, it, I find that very early on, officials in the government are, are kind of in, two, in one of two camps. Either they're just straight up deniers, UFOs are you know products of delusional minds, they're hoaxes, that kind of thing, and they really just stick to that line. Or you get people like Wilbur Smith, who is, I guess, the, you know, who went furthest down that path. And there's a number of people kind of along the spectrum who raise the possibility of extraterrestrial, you know, um, origin or express some, some interest in it at the very least. And so there's a couple of little camps. And, and so very early on, those solidify and, and it stays that way for, for the most part. So there's not a ton of change over time, but it's interesting to see that it, I think the thing that does change over time is just outside factors kind of impinging on that and making you know, certain things possible at different times because of public opinion. Interesting. Um, did you ever come across times where the government uh, internally or within these documents appear to be reacting to, you know, media coverage of UFOs? Like, <laughs> and the reason I ask that is a lot of people think like, you know, if we can get this topic of UFOs in the news, the government will have to, you know, give Wilbert Smith a couple or, or the new Wilbert Smith money yeah. to figure this out. Have you seen, do you see them responding to media stories? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Those ones are always entertaining. Yeah. I can think of one, uh, I think it was the late 60s. I'm, I'm a bit fuzzy on the date of that one, but the Department of Defense is really, really clear in this memo that goes around that they, they know that the CBC, you know, is kind of been snooping around looking for someone to interview about, I think there was a program that they were going to air or I can't remember exactly what the story was, but there was just like, uh, we say no to the CBC, just like clear communication. So there's a couple like that where they're, they, they really tried to clamp down on it. There's a couple of extended exchanges. There's one in particular with this um, uh, uh, you know, bureaucrat in Ottawa who's speaking with a Canadian-based writer, but the, Cana the, the writer's writing for an uh, uh, England-based publication. I think it's in London. Um, and so there's some delay, and that plays into, because they have the correspondence back, and the whole story is about Robert Smith, who becomes a hot potato topic. Um, and so there's this, this back and forth 
between the writer and the government official about like, how's this going to be framed? And you, you know, the government official saying, you can't put this in, you can't put that in. Uh, and the other guys, you know, writing back about freedom of the press. And, it, and it, it's like all these kind of like classic debates come up. And then in the end, it gets published anyway. And the government official, I think, just kind of backs off knowing it's, a, you know, they've lost that battle. Um, but you, you really see these, these, those are those moments where I'm like, this is not really about UFOs a lot of the time. I think this is tapping into other people's, you know, fears and concerns and, and unmet needs in yeah, various so ways. It's funny because you, you kind of wrote a book on government and humanity, um, but you just chose UFOs as <laughs> kind of the platform to do that, which is kind yeah. of the, it's the long way there, but it's certainly uh, one route. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the UFOs are the plot and the insight into, I guess, our political culture is the story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I know the book is is probably more so described as like, you know, history and politics more so than uh, like paranormal or supernatural. But do you consider yourself a believer? Uh, yeah, I think in a lot of ways. I, I, I'm not sure in, in many other ways. I'm pretty agnostic a lot of the time. You know, I'm agnostic about religion. I think that's also because I've been teaching a lot of philosophy and English literature. And so it's, yeah, it makes it difficult to take a clear position when you're constantly thinking yeah. that much about it. And, and in terms of, you know, UFOs and aliens, I think I'm, I'm solidly, solidly of the belief that, you know, extraterrestrials must exist out there somewhere. Yeah, I, I that's pretty similar to my view. My, But I think one thing we'll probably agree on big time with the, the kind of the belief side of it is, I'm almost like I assume that there are extraterrestrials somewhere out there, whether they're coming to here yeah. and crashing is a different story. But yeah. really what I think is like, regardless of all of that, if you just look at the discourse that surrounds UFOs on planet Earth, you're going to find like fascinating people just buzzing around there. And especially if you go back a little ways and find, you know, the, just the the weird UFO sightings from small town, you know, Manitoba, some guy in a field saw something. I guarantee you that guy is fascinating and he'd yeah. be an amazing guy to have coffee with. Yeah, and that's kind of <laughs> like my view of the topic. And that's one of the reasons I enjoy the Canadian UFO kind of history so much is there there's not really like the big star like you would have in the u.s with someone associated with roswell or you know someone in the government who breaks ranks and talks publicly mm. in canada it seems like you got fishermen you got farmers uh maybe at amateur astronomers like these yeah. are like kind of regular folks um and, and kind of something i wanted to do to highlight that is i i picked up a, i picked out a few stories from Canadian UFO history, really looking at the last five or 10 years. And cool. what, what I wanted to do is just kind of read you the article. Uh, you can give me your thoughts on on the article itself, but also if if this kind of reminds you of anything from the book yeah. that you would have seen the government respond to. Now, when I did the dive into the, for various UFO reports, what I did find is that of course, CBC and like the local news have covered it a lot. But oddly enough, I was finding a lot of international stories about Canadian UFO sightings. Mm. And I, I'm not really sure how that happened. But some of the better ones that I found were like, you know, British tabloids and such. But uh, I'm going to start here in home. I'm going to start in Saanich. That's BC, I believe. Uh, I think so. Yeah, it is. Um, so I'll read this to you. So this is an article by the Saanich News. 
headlining uh, UFO sighting. Did aliens recently visit White Rock? So I'll read it to you. So a mysterious unidentified, or I should also say the date of this is, uh, this is an article from, oh, this is fairly recent, December 22nd of 01, or, or of oh. 21, sorry. December 22nd, 2021. So just five months back. So here we go. So a mysterious unidentified flying object over Semahemo Bay has caught the attention and imagination of some White Rock residents. Matt Kilback first responded seeing first reported seeing the unusual object to a White Rock Facebook group last week. Kilback, who was asking if anyone else saw the anomalies that took place on December 15th, reported seeing what he initially thought was a waterspout forming. In an interview with Peace Arch News, Kilback said the morphing object first looked like a plume of smoke or mist. Now they're quoting him. Super saturated, dark, low-hanging, free-moving clouds that looked like it was trying to touch down on the water to form a water spout. Up above it, there were literally circle clouds, Kelbach says. As soon as it touched the water, it would start pulling water up, and then it would collapse. And then it would disappear for a second, almost as if it was going to go into the water. And then it would start reforming again in another spot. Kilbach said the object was about two to five kilometers out of the bay, but says he got a, pre- a pretty decent look at it coming out of the water. It was forming like a sort of funnel-shaped sort of thing, and then it completely came out of the water, and it came probably a few hundred feet up, and then it came back down, and it totally submerged itself and formed. Uh, it looked like a solid formation under the water, and then it started moving without making any splashes. It wasn't disturbing the water at all, but you could see clearly it was a round object that was submerged right under the surface of the water, and it was moving at incredible speeds. Shannon Stewart, who also observed the unusual object, described it as really weird. There was a, <laughs> there was a dark shadow moving across the water, and then it would disappear and reappear, moving in another direction. And that went on for a long time, Stewart told Pan, which must be a news network. We used binoculars to look because we thought it was a whale in the bay or maybe a flock of birds, but we didn't see any birds. But there was something at the tip of the shadow coming out of the water, maybe a seal or something. Asked if Stewart could have observed or asked if what Stewart could have observed was a submarine. She said, no, it definitely wasn't a submarine. It didn't move like that at all. Kilback offered two theories, suggesting the object was related to a U.S. Navy technology or maybe it was extraterrestrial. Mm. <laughs> and here, here's where we get into the theories. So it looked like either nanotech or it was ethereal, man. I'm telling you, I do believe that we can't be the only ones in the universe. You can't help but think aliens, man, Kilback told this reporter. Contacted by Pan White Rock sees tours owner andrew newman who has spent countless hours in the bay weighed in on what it could have been newman said when the atmospheric conditions are just right objects in the water such as a vessel can appear distorted it may even appear as a mirage another theory which newman agreed is more likely is that it could have been a flock of birds i've seen them in the distance and and it's ridiculous too that but it does look like a flying saucer newman said and we're, we're getting near the end here. So local photographer and birder Kate Patton pointed to Dunland, small birds that flock in numbers of up to 40,000. I can totally understand why some people may think it's an alien or it's otherworldly, but they're just a bunch of little tiny birds. <laughs> Patton explained that the birds arrive over winter and move up and down the coast in great numbers, 
uh, before returning to the Arctic in spring or in summer. As they turn and catch the light, they seem to disappear for a while. But when they catch the light, black and then white, it's obvious. It's absolutely brilliant to watch. Patton says the birds are only about the size of your thumb. Their dance or murmuration, murmuration uh, is usually a defensive maneuver to evade falcons, Patton wrote. They flash and swoop and vanish, trying to trick the falcon. Killback, however, he isn't convinced. There's no chance it was birds, man. No chance at all. <laughs> I like that. I love it. Yeah, it's well, a great one. They wow. actually went deeper than I would have expected. And they, whoever that reporter is um, for the Sandage News, they really went to like all sides of the story, including like I like the guy though. It's like it's a theory. It was almost ethereal, man. <laughs> I love that yeah, they left that like... quote in. The quotes are great. Yeah. I the the stuff that I've looked at, man, there's super they're often really, really short articles and it's just the most bland, like, typical things you'd expect. But that, that's nice, colorful. Yeah. <laughs> and that uh, like like I said, it gave out all sides. So they got you know, the bird expert weighing in on these little birds. Yeah. Then the idea of, you know, this sighting took place over the water and I can almost so Chris Rutkowski is a guest, a frequent guest of the show and friend of the show, and I can almost hear in his voice explaining the idea of like something way off in a distance over the water and just the weird effect that the you know the yeah. horizon and the light reflections make things look weird. But whatever, what? But I think what I always wonder: you hear an, a story like that, and how does it end up on the news? Like I think <laughs> in this case, maybe it's it sounds like it started on a Facebook group. And maybe the journalist was just like, you know, trolling the group, looking for something interesting. Yeah, yeah. But, or they have a particular interest or, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a good question because I don't have, you know, I use little articles like that from local papers throughout the, uh, throughout the book, really as this way to give this like counterpoint to the national media or, or even international media in some cases. Because the national media I find is usually really skeptical at least up to a certain point, whereas the local media was always just much more, just give a lot more credit. You know, we really, we don't know what this is, but often it's really small communities and we believe this person. So maybe it's something. And know. not a lot has happened lately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there was this cool post on the local Facebook group. Here's another one. This one will come from the national media. This is a CBC News story. Uh, published October 7th, 2014. Headline being, Glowing green orbs seen over Resolute have an earthly explanation. Let's see. So residents of Resolute Nunavut reported seeing unidentified flying objects in the sky this past weekend. After sunset on Saturday night, uh, Erlerock Amalarak, I think it's an Inuit name, uh, says she was walking on the edge of town when she saw a pair of glowing orbs float to the earth. One half of them was lit the whole time, and the other half would flash green on and off, and there was also a parachute on it, a red-looking parachute, she says. The unidentified flying objects, or rather unidentified parachuting objects, turned out to be volleyball-sized drift markers deployed by the Royal Canadian Air Force mm. Hercules during civilian search and rescue training in the area. Drift markers are used to help gauge winds and locate a drop zone. We do that in, van in advance of dropping a search and rescue technician out of an aircraft, says David Elias, a spokesperson for the airport, uh, the Air Force. Amarliak says 
although she's surprised to find the objects, she learned, uh, she learned what they were and how they got there through social media. Elias says other routine training, routine training exercises were held last week in Pond Inlet, Goja Haven, and the Arctic Bay. Elias says the equipment was picked up the next day, and they warned that similar training will take place in June of next year. <laughs> so when I read that one, what I thought is, as you go through the government reports to putting your book together, I'm sure there's times where there's a clear explanation, but the person reporting it may not believe it. Like I, I can imagine, like in this case, she reports it. They're like, no, no, it was, you know, this training exercise. She's like, oh, cool. But I'm sure there's some people that are like, you're lying and you're, you know, and I'm going to go to your boss and their boss. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, absolutely. You... Yeah. Yeah. And I think that exact scenario, you'll find that a couple times, at least in the book where, you know, maybe it's not the most tidy of tidiest of explanations, but, you know, it's, it's still usually pretty clear that, oh, it was just like an airplane or uh, in, in one case, like I think a water tower, you know, there's, there's a pretty conventional explanation that I think satisfies most, but there are some people that just really, it, it doesn't work for them. They, it, they refuse to believe it for one reason or another. And so, yeah, you get into discussions about like iconoclasm, people who are just really set against authority. And so any further appeal to expertise or authority is just going to make them angry. You know, huh. It just doesn't work. Yeah, that's uh, so, I don't know if that yeah. reminds me of any current events that are happening in this country. <laughs> but do you have you found many links between the UFO topic and other things happening in the world today? Yeah, that's this come up a lot. It's interesting. You know, when I started this project, I thought it was just gonna be this kind of fun, wacky thing, and I'd learn a ton at the same time. Did not expect it to become so directly relevant to uh, COVID pandemic times and the rise of, as, as the subtitle of the book says, the rise of conspiracy theory. It's really become part of political culture now to distrust authority, distrust expertise, seek information and validation in, in different places um, that the state or the government has a great difficulty in making sense of, or, you know, even just keeping up with the, the pace of it. And so, yeah, a lot of that has, I've just, a lot of the stuff I've been seeing play out over the last couple of years, it's, it's been amazing because it's, it's just like I've seen that in the UFO files of all places because it's the same underlying feelings that are animating a lot of this action, I think. Yeah, well, that's why I'm always like, I wish conspiracies were like, were fun and cool like this again. Because <laughs> like the, the UFO conspiracy, that's like, a, it's like a playful one that's fascinating and interesting. You can have great conversations. But if you look at all like the kind of the current conspiracies that are dominating the discussion online, it's like, you can't, you can't discuss that in a group of people and have a good time. It, it's like, no matter what, it's going to end in an argument yeah. and people getting banned on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I try to stick to the, you know, like the moon landing hoax and the, yeah, the outer space theme stuff. They're pretty, I think they're pretty harmless for the most part. <laughs> yeah. Or it's, it's at least, it's like, a, it's just overall more playful and fun. Uh, let's, I'm going to get to the next, the next story here. This is, this is the Daily Mail, which is a UK based, mm -hmm. um, I guess, tabloid or journal, uh, but it's covering a UFO, a Canadian UFO story. So cool. this is an article from uh, September 9th of 2013 with the headline, Thousands Spot UFO Hovering Over a Canadian Minor League Baseball Game. Wow. So this is going to be a good cool. one. Um, oddly enough, uh, didn't make it to the Canadian news as far as I could tell, but here we go. 
So Canadian minor league baseball draws some fans from far, far away, it seems. Spectators at the Nat Bailey Stadium in Vancouver, Canada, were stunned to spot what appeared to be a UFO in the sky above the first game of the best-of-three North Division final battle between the Vancouver Canadians and the Everett Aqua Sox. Nor was there any doubt as to which team the intergalactic groupies were cheering for. The Canadians scored four runs at the time of the sighting, sparking whispers of cosmic intervention. <laughs> and, and the Twitter hashtag, ha, uh, hashtag lucky UFO, began to appear. The blue object, adorned with the requisite flashing lights, appeared over the right, lane, uh, the right field fence at the start of the sixth inning. Even players on the Vancouver Canadiens team were tweeting pictures of the flying disc as it hovered above the Scotiabank field home. One Twitter user said he saw the supposed flying saucer moving up and down in the sky over a crowd of just over 1,700 baseball fans. The luck of the little green men clearly held out as the Vancouver Canadians went on to win the match with a 5-1 to one score, despite a slow start to their play. However, a YouTube video of the surreal sighting produced some less enthusiastic responses from UFO raiders. Uh, some apparently took genuine offense at the, astronaut, at the astronomical claims with one user who called themselves Saddam Hussein, writing, You guys are so gullible, these exact colors are used on the majority of the RC aircrafts available in stores. Even planes, real planes, use those colors on each side of their wings. And then the message continues, Wake up, I believe in UFOs, I truly do, but I'm not a F star 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 stupid gullible moronic person like the rest of you who believe in everything. Others mentioned that the camera was pointed towards the southwest in the direction of the Vancouver International Airport and suggested a large passenger jet or freight aircraft might be the more likely identity of the ship. Yet another YouTube user, this one named the Neon, the New Eon, floated the idea of a weather balloon filled with swamp gas. <laughs> while, a, while someone named BC Stargazer wrote, I'm sure there's a Photoshop class near Maine and Hastings. <laughs> a user named CMSAHE, however, pointed out that as the true identity of the ship was still unconfirmed, the moniker UFO, as an unidentified flying object, should still apply. One survey in May this year, oh, and I think they're going to be quoting now, uh, Chris Rutkowski's Canadian Ooh. UFO survey. So it says one survey in May this year suggested record numbers of Canadian UFO reports in 2012, a staggering 1,981. The figure almost doubled 2008's previous annual record of 1,004 sightings. In November of 2011, a UFO was reportedly seen over an NFL game in St. Louis, United States. And that's how they end, I guess, just by being like, I guess this isn't the only <laughs> sports event that a UFO was seen over. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but, that, but that one, what I love about that, that, for one, it's a great story and it's very cinematic. The idea of a yeah. ship flying over a baseball game, it is like <laughs> a movie. But the, the writer of that clearly has a sense of humor with the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the other thing that struck me was like, if, if I just step back and I forget that this is, what, 2013 or whatever it was, and I forget that some of the technology is more advanced, like nothing has changed. It, it, I can see all of those sides or the two main sides in that debate in the original files. It's like, mm -hmm. it, it's amazing how it's the, 
yeah, it, it doesn't really matter. It seems decade to decade, the same things are there. Yeah, yeah, and there's always something that will pop up that is like the likely explanation or the commonly used explanation. And you see um, one of the YouTube users is like, it's a weather balloon filled with swamp gas. Yeah. Like for, for a while, it's like everything was a weather balloon. For a while, everything was swamp gas. For a while, everything was like uh, experimental government planes and such. But now it's just drones. Like every UFO yeah. sighting is... Oh, it must be drones. But th that said, I have seen some um, wild displays that are this kind of new version of like fireworks almost that they that are, use drones to, to make happen. And if you watch some of the videos of like, you know, the cutting edge of that technology, it really makes you worry about the future of, you know, the UFO discourse. Because it's yeah, quite wild. And, it's, and I just had this image of of drones and the chariot in the sky. You know, it's one of the classic UFO sightings from the Bible, the kind of thing. It's like, wow, that's actually possible now. I imagine they could do that. Um, weird. You now for, as you put all your time together, uh, as you put your time putting this book together, is there any story like a UFO sighting or a UFO incident or event that you found putting this together that really stood out as like, wow, what a, you know, what a wild time that must've been. Hmm. Oh man, I always get asked that question. <laughs> What's the single most fun? Um, I, I think I think the thing that I found the most interesting, especially recently now that the book is coming out, is not even just that a single story from from the book. And I and I promise there's a few wackier ones in there, but just that everyone I talk to seems to have a UFO story now. Mm -hmm. And and that's something I noticed very early on in the research. Like anybody I tell that I do this usually the next thing out of their mouth is, oh yeah, yeah, I saw something back when. And, and it happened kind of, you know, here and there, but now it's just happening more and more and more. I've noticed an increase, huh. um, especially if I've gotten into this. So yeah, it's, it's, I won't give away any, any of the, the fun ones. There's, there's plenty in there. And, and I think the drawings are a favorite part as well, but yeah. I've just been really struck by how much people are, I guess there's maybe an upsurge in interest and in, in people are taking it more seriously. Well, it's, it's really changed over the last, like, even the last five, seven years or so, the whole mood that surrounds, you know, mm -hmm. the UFO conversation has certainly changed. And I, I think a lot of it is just due to mainstream coverage of, you know, the government, the American government and UFOs. It just makes it seem, I guess, a lot more real. Um, but at the same time, I think it also makes it a little boring because it's, I, I don't know. I just, I find out, I really enjoy like the out out there story that is experienced and told by just a regular person mm. um, who just happened to see something fantastic. Mm -hmm. the, the stories that involve, uh, you know, I'm an insider in the government and I was flying my, you know, $30 million plane and my camera caught this thing. I just, uh, it just doesn't move me the way, you know, um, the fishermen in Shag Harbor reporting their sighting does. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Actually, that that brings me to this point: is there's a few famous, like Canadian sightings. Like I'm thinking of Shag Harbor and Falcon Lake. Um, did, did those stories come up at all in what you were doing? Like, were they as a big of a deal within the government as they are for people following the UFO I, world? I can happily say yes. There's actually an entire chapter on on those two cases, Shag okay. Harbor and the Falcon Lake incident, and the third one. I found a case in the. And it's weird because they all happened in the same year, 1967. Huh. And so I found a third case about crop circles, a really early case of crop circles. Where the government actually took it. Yeah, they took them all seriously in, in the um, 
not to get into it too much, but the main thing, the main difference is that they all left physical evidence of some kind. Okay. And so it's just a lot easier to justify an investigation in that case. Hmm. Yeah. So they're in there, and, and the government did take them seriously, yeah, in, in a, or at least much more seriously than pretty well any other case. Hello listeners, sorry to pull you out of the episode like this, but I want to take a moment and tell you about the premium feed and an exclusive episode I just published to it. Now in the past, I released a two-part series on nighttime that covers the disappearance of then three-year-old Dylan Ehler. During that two-parter, I speak to both the boy's father, Jason Ehler, and his grandmother, Dorothy. Well, as it turns out, in the time since those episodes, the finger-pointing between these two has grown into something that looks a lot like criminal harassment. In fact, just recently I attended a peace bond hearing that was the result of death threats made by Jason towards Dorothy. And the hearing, quite honestly, was unlike anything I've ever heard play out in a courtroom. In the premium feed episode that I just released, I provide additional details on and share my reaction to the very ugly battle between Dylan Ehler's father, Jason, and his grandmother, Dorothy. You can hear that episode and access all the other premium content at patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. So if you want to help support the show and give yourself more of it, go to p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash nighttime podcast and subscribe to the premium feed. And as a gentle reminder, all annual subscribers receive a nighttime swag pack by mail. Now let's get back to the episode. Yeah, and now your book is um, the the publisher. It's it's not a traditional publisher. It's it's like the Queen's Univers or McGill Queen's University Press. That that means it's like a the publisher's the actual like university or something. Like how does that work? So yeah, some universities in this case too, McGill and, and Queens, they run an, a, a press and, and they publish books, uh, something scholarly articles. And so you know when you're publishing a book, you can go a couple different ways. You can go with more commercial trade presses or you can go with a university press. And because this was a story coming out of my dissertation, um, I just chose to go with that, go that route. And the main difference is that this means that the book has gone through peer review. And so it's being reviewed by um, the, you know, the community, by a couple of representatives of the scholarly community who have you know, kind of given a stamp of approval in a, in a sense. Okay. Um, and I, so. I guess that's why I'm like, um, I guess when I first opened it, what I was expecting is for it to kind of jump right into the book and end. But the, it, there's a lot of like, again, at the beginning, there's a lot of like diagrams and it ends with right. a really in-depth table of contents or um, not table of contents, like what's it called? A, at the a end? bibliography like, at the big, end. And, yeah. And, it and it and just notes. like, yeah, lots of notes. Yeah. <laughs> like more than a, 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 a traditional book, like more than what I would expect a UFO book. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I guess maybe that's a part of this like peer review where you really need to cite your sources. Absolutely. Yeah. It's all just about, you know, doing research with rigor and yeah. showing where, where have I got this information, being honest about how I've come to my conclusions about it. And, you know, if you, if, if something feels off, you can go check the sources. They're all cited huh. there and, and it's, it's a, it's a cool process. Anyway. It seems like a unique for a UFO book. I think people will right. see a book <laughs> called search for the unknown Canada's UFO files and the rise of conspiracy theory and think like, Oh yeah, I'm going to, you know, this is going to be out there, but this, it very much like, it isn't a big step away from 
like a university <laughs> textbook. But I guess as you like where it came from your dissertation, you simply had to smooth out the writing to make it you know suitable for a casual reader. And this is what you came up with. In for, many ways, yeah, that's all it is. It's like I hope that it, I hope that it's more readable than a university textbook. Certainly, I think yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. But but I mean, as far as like yeah. the information in the the research and the organization, it it comes across like that. But I can read it, and if I and I am like I could not read a university textbook. If I can read it and enjoy it with my attention span, that's like that says a lot for the uh, approachability of a book. Um, no, the, <laughs> the, the um publisher of it like does does that affect where people can get it like how can someone nope. buy this book oh it's available anywhere you would normally get it on, on amazon chapters indigo it's in it's in local in bookstores i don't know about local ones but it's certainly in the bookstore that's where i i took a special trip and found it it was very exciting um, so it's available where you normally get it which is very nice yeah and it is beautiful it's it, the the copy that i got is a hard cover with like the leaflet thing over it it, will it eventually be like, you know, like a soft cover kind of thing? Or is or is the presentation always going to be this uh, fancy? I don't know. <laughs> I'm okay. not really sure. I guess it, it partly depends on how well it does. Um, but yeah, the, I, I just love it. I From the first time I saw the cover and then I received it, it just blew my mind. It, it, I think it's great. And, and it's all kudos to the press. Yeah. yeah. And you say how well it does. How is it doing so far? What's the reaction been to I've, this? I, everything I've heard is positive. Like, I think everybody is just interested in the topic. I think that just, you know, really through no, of none of my own making, it's just become really relevant. And I think it's, I'm hoping that it helps people make some small, like sense of what's happening today with our politics now in whatever small way. I think mm -hmm. it'll speak to that. Yeah. And what's next? Like, I know that this was based on a thesis you wrote I guess maybe I keep guessing time. It was about two years ago, I guess, that you defended it. Oh, yeah, I finished that in May 2019. Started okay. in 2014, so it's been a few years. Yeah. Then you spent your time turning it into a book. Somewhere in there, you made a documentary film as well about the granite saucer. Oh yes, we talked about that as well. Yeah, yeah that's what you were on for last time. I <laughs> that's think. That's right. Was... That's right. Yeah. yeah. But uh, man, you've been busy. But what's next? Yeah. Are you like working on another book? Are you leaving UFOs behind? Or I guess well, I don't think I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'm leaving it behind. I think I'll take uh, it'll go on maybe a little side journey. I think I'm going to start working on more conspiracy theory stuff. It's just in the air. I think it's you know necessary. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe another book about conspiracy theory in Canada specifically because I haven't seen much about that. Uh, and it would just be nice to give some context to what's happening. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. You know. The books take a while, <laughs> so I might be working on it for a bit. Yeah. yeah we'll see. How long did it take you to turn it from a thesis into like a book? Uh, let's see. I guess a couple of years or three years, three years in total, almost wow. exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, and the other thing I should plug actually is that I'm going to be on a show on Crave TV, which is going to be cool. What? Uh, for, and I think maybe people will be interested. Um, it was just announced recently. There's a show called "We're All Going to Die," even Jay Baruchel. I, I know so, the show. Oh, okay, I, yeah. I, I haven't seen it, but I've seen <laughs> yeah. like, is that show out now? Or maybe I saw a trailer for it. Yeah, and there's a trailer. April I think 30th. that's what I saw in every episode is kind of like a different reason humanity is probably going to die soon. <laughs> yeah. So, it's all about existential risk. Yeah. Oh, so that's There's amazing. one about aliens, I guess, alien invasion. So 
uh, I'll make an appearance in that. Yeah. Very cool. Awesome. April 30th on Crave, if you're interested in more. Awesome. And for people out there who want, if they want to get the book, we talked about that. If they want to find you and follow what you're doing, uh, I would like to plug, actually, you probably don't know this, but I'll tell you now is, uh, Every single night when I go to bed with my oldest son, when as like we usually will like sit and chat for a minute, maybe I'll read something to him or we'll play a minute of a video game. But what he always enjoys doing before bed, and again, if, if I can't uh, overstate this, it is a nightly routine. We have to open Instagram to look at the story for free food films, which is your Instagram <laughs> handle. Because oh you, what we say is you take like the best, I don't use TikTok because I have you, and you'll take like the best like 10 videos, I guess, of TikTok, and they're in your Instagram story. And every single night we watch them and laugh uh, before we go to sleep. <laughs> oh man, yeah, I just... I just like search away. It's just for my own amusement, but I've, I've heard that from a few people. Yeah. Well, if for people who aren't on TikTok, you're really doing a service. Oh yeah, public service. That's nice. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but anyway, that, that was that was the long way to ask. Where, where do people find you? Oh yeah, um, yeah. I'm on I'm on Twitter, Free Food Films, um, and then I also have a website, the, which you can access through Twitter. But uh, it's the onlymatthewhayes.com because I'm the only one out there obviously nice because <laughs> <laughs> matthewhayes.com was taken so you're yeah, like the yeah. only matthewhayes.com yeah. there's a few of us out there <laughs> awesome yeah. well this has been awesome i i encourage anyone interested in the topic to buy your book or anyone just interested in canadian government history in and looking at it through a really unique lens yeah um, yeah search it's for the a unknown different. A, yeah certainly but uh dr hayes this has been awesome Oh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so you, much. You come back again soon? Absolutely. I want to thank you for joining Matthew and I in our Keep Canada Weird discussion. But before we part, I have to give some thanks. First, thanks to Dr. Matthew Hayes for sharing an evening with me and with you, the listeners of Nighttime. A big thanks to Monty Data for contributing the music for this episode. And thanks to the internet's favorite cult leader, Unicol, who supplied the intro and outro narration. But most importantly, I want to give a massive thank you to everyone who listens to Nighttime, as without your interest and your support, this show would be as pointless as it would be impossible. But with that said, keeping the show alive is and has always been an uphill battle. So if anyone out there wants to help take a bit of weight off the show's back, please consider subscribing to the premium feed. Not only does it make the show possible, it'll give you more of each topic than you'll find here on the free feed as I'm adding exclusive content regularly. So for about the price of a cup of coffee, keep the show alive via the premium feed at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And on the topic of the premium feed, I want to thank the newest subscribers, Betty, John, and Patricia. Thank you for going premium. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show, but can't do it via a premium feed subscription, you can give me a big hand by simply sharing this episode on social media and letting like-minded friends know why they should listen to it. If you have any story ideas or if you want to give feedback on the show, you can reach me at nighttimepodcast.com slash contact or find me on social media. So I hope to hear from you. But until then, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.
beautiful, serene, majestic, the true North, strong and weird.